Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, personal emails spur another review of the Greenbelt land swap scandal. A cap on student visas puts the financial instability of post-secondary education into the spotlight. And an Ontario cabinet minister is quitting provincial politics to run federally. Our thoughts on why he's making the jump and why others aren't. And in your column, my column, I'll focus on whether Canada will have enough electric vehicles to meet our target in 2035. While my column looks at the larger-than-life Rocco Rossi, who after six years has stepped down as head of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, he turned 62 this week, but he insists he's not retiring, he's rewiring. It's January 30th, 2024, so let's get to it. JMM, did you have fun at Roma last week? I did indeed. Uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of moderating the ministers' forum, where uh, most of the Ontario cabinet gets uh, peppered with questions from elected officials from around the province. And uh, you know, then uh, on my way out of the conference, I bumped into uh, several people who, uh, uh, you know, I, I've, I've done a few of these now, so it was good to see some uh, familiar faces and uh, and some people who had nice things to say about uh, the stuff we do here at TVO. Well, and you know how I knew we had a lot of listeners there? Uh, How's that? Because people would constantly come up to me and ask me about, how's JMM doing? (laughs) And no one started calling you JMM before I did on this podcast. So that's how I knew. Uh, that's true. I've had many nicknames in my past, but uh, JMM really uh, became more common currency uh, since I started doing this podcast. <laughs> Indeed. And, you know, actually, I've got to say, I really enjoy going to the Roma events, too. And we, we did a couple of panels there for the agenda, which we shot and will be shown on a later date. Uh, it is really great. And, you know, I, I always want to remember, because, of course, we spend the preponderance of our time here in Toronto, and I always want to remember that um, the province of Ontario is so much more than Toronto, and you can get sucked into the Toronto vortex and thinking that if it doesn't happen at Queen's Park, it doesn't really happen. And you go to a Roma conference, and you see Roma, Rural Ontario Municipal Association, and, and you see so many issues that are taking place outside the greater Toronto area, and it's just a fan... Not that you and I need reminding, because I think you and I spend a lot of time outside of Toronto, but it's just... It's a great thing to remember that there's so much more to Ontario than just the capital city. Oh, absolutely. As you say, you know, we we try reasonably hard to uh, keep our... uh uh, our mind outside of uh, the provincial capital and outside of the largest cities, um, because there's just so many other stories out there that uh, you know also deserve attention. And still, uh, despite uh, our best efforts, you go and you spend even just you know an afternoon with uh, the folks at Roma, and uh, you know you hear about. Uh, problems in this community that are just unlike, uh, you know, what you see anywhere else or, um, you know, other perspectives that you just don't necessarily anticipate. Uh, I will say uh, one of the things that struck me while I was up there, you know, under the spotlights at the Minister's Forum. This year, more than past years, I did think that a lot of the issues were 
much more general. It wasn't um, specifically uh, or exclusively uh, questions that you would only hear about in rural Ontario. Uh, rural representatives were raising issues like uh, uh, healthcare funding. Now, obviously, in rural Ontario, that has a very specific uh, uh, valence. But uh, then you also had elected uh, women uh, asking about uh, the government, the government's whether the government would support uh, legislation to uh, protect uh, uh, female politicians and civil servants subject to harassment. Uh, so, you know that that's not specifically a rural issue. Um, but here were uh, rural representatives, uh, you know, raising it to the government. And so as much as I think there are very uh, there there are very important divisions and distinctions between uh, to, to simplify it big city Ontario and rural Ontario uh, there are also issues that affect us all equally and and that was actually I think what struck me most about uh, Roma last week very well said okay let's get on to the mailbag here we do enjoy getting your feedback here's the email address to get us at it's on politics at tvo.org and JMM what have we got up this week uh, we have a uh, comment on my pronunciation from listener Michael Harrison, uh, who wrote, On last week's podcast, JMM said XYZ instead of Z. He used the American pronunciation instead of the Canadian. You know, I, I was debating. I was really debating. As soon as you said XYZ, my antennae went up and I was thinking, oh, man, now do I do I bust his chops on this right now or do I wait until after or what do I do? Because as soon as I heard it, I knew we would get some mail about it. And sure enough, we did. Now, I'm going to give you at least some kudos because at least you do say when referring to the vice regal representative in the province of Ontario, you say lieutenant governor. I've never heard you say lieutenant governor. So I'm going to give you some props on that. Um, but yeah, going forward, JMM, it's XYZ, not XYZ. I think somebody tried to, to catch us on that. And we actually went back to the tape one time because somebody thought I had said lieutenant. And when we, when we checked the tape, I had said lieutenant. Um, no, so we actually have some uh, added context uh, from our uh, producer, Matthew O'Mara, who looked this up. Uh, Zed is the older of the two pronunciations, uh, first appearing in the 1400s. Z was first seen in the in 1670s, and it became prominent during the Revolutionary War as Americans were trying to distance themselves from anything British, including uh, older ways of pronouncing, in this case, the final letter in the alphabet. Uh, lots of other uh, spelling differences and pronunciation changes uh, between American and British English, of course. Uh, so really, you know, uh, all I was trying to do, you can see, was just give us an excuse to impart a history lesson through my um, incorrect pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> In which case, history lesson successfully imparted. Well done. Again, if you'd like to ask about content on the show, please email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. Now, on to issue one. The Greenbelt land swap scandal has returned. Ryan Amato, who was the former chief of staff to then the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, sent an email from a private account to Patrick Sackville, who was Premier Doug Ford's principal secretary at the time. He's now the chief of staff. The email contained criteria for land to be removed from the Greenbelt. JMM, pick up the story if you would. 
anybody who uh, spends any time in political journalism, you eventually learn that the uh, dirty little secret about our freedom of information laws is that uh, a lot of political staffers conduct government business more or less openly uh, on their own personal emails uh, that are not necessarily captured by uh, servers or and they are not um, operated by uh, government employees. Uh, if a freedom of information request or a, a police investigation uh, comes up and uh, people are, are told to search their uh, private inboxes, uh, the, the the law is still supposed to be able to capture those. Uh, and nevertheless, a lot of business happens on uh, personal email inboxes. This uh, The specifics of this uh, issue, of this, this new email that has been uh, revealed, uh, are that uh, it, it seems to indicate that the premier's office was more directly involved in the selection of greenbelt lands that were supposed to be turned uh, or were supposed to be carved out of the greenbelt uh, earlier than the premier's office had claimed. It, uh, it's not clear yet whether it sort of directly refutes uh, the assertions that the premier's office has been making up until now, but. It certainly uh, leads to more questions. Amato has resigned. Clark uh, is is still an MPP, but is no longer in cabinet. Uh, this could potentially cause more problems for uh, the premier. Uh, but I, I think the the bigger point is just once again, and and frankly, <laughs> people might be tired of hearing me say this, but I mean the damage from the Greenbelt scandal just keeps coming, and and. Uh, at least when the premier uh, reversed himself last year, I, I think you could uh, argue that maybe they had sort of put a Band-Aid on it uh, or stopped the bleeding. And it just seems like, no, there there are more revelations coming out. There may be yet more. Uh, David Mosscrop, uh, one of our uh, regular contributors at TVO.org, uh, wrote a column for our website about uh, what these uh, repeated breaches of trust do to the provincial government's reputation. Uh, probably will not shock anybody who knows David's writing that he was uh, not uh, 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 praising the government in that uh, uh, instance. And he writes that good processes exist to prevent exactly these kinds of scandals from taking place, right? There's a reason why we have a civil service that is supposed to be part of the policymaking process and clearly... Uh, just was not part of uh, this procedure. The Auditor General and Integrity Commissioner have already written reports about uh, the Greenbelt scandal, and the government is is following many of the recommendations laid out uh, by the the Auditor General. Uh, the of course the the one that they sort of uh, dragged their feet on and insisted they were not going to follow uh, was uh, reversing the land swap uh, entirely. Um, of course, they did eventually follow that one as well. Let me pick up on the notion of checks and balances in our system to make sure that ministers or um, advisors to ministers or the premier, for that matter, aren't just out there freelancing, but there actually is some method to the madness. So, I mean, I, among many others, have asked some of the following questions. Where was the secretary to the cabinet in all of this? There's an oversight role to be performed there. Where was the deputy minister of uh, municipal affairs and housing? In all of this, where was that oversight role? Those are two high-ranking civil servants whose job would be to scrutinize exactly these kinds of goings-on. Now, just some speculation here, but maybe they did weigh in and maybe they were overruled by, let's just call them people with more authority than them, or maybe they did not weigh in, in which case that's a problem of a different kind. Um, maybe a little clarification of who did what would be very helpful to better understanding how the premier's decision to break his promise and allow development in the Greenbelt could have happened. 
And as we try to understand whether this story is essentially done, because the premier, after all, has reversed himself and says there will be no development in the Greenbelt after all, it is worth remembering the following. And JMM, you touched on this. J. David Wake, the Integrity Commissioner, will be reviewing this issue. There's no timeline for when we'll receive a report from his office, but it's coming. The RCMP is still doing a probe of this matter. That's ongoing. So this issue seems to be far from gone from the headlines. And I guess I'll throw a question your way. Uh, John Michael, what ultimately do you think these two remaining investigations are designed to accomplish? Well, the RCMP investigation is going to determine whether there's any actual criminal liability for any of the individuals, either uh, Amato or former Minister Clark or uh, potentially even Premier Ford himself. Uh, we don't know the full extent of the, the possible breaches of law here because new facts keep being uncovered. Uh, one law that has been mentioned a few times is breach of trust. This is the uh, same crime that was alleged against two aides to former Premier Dalton McGuinty, although those charges were dropped uh, in the process of uh, their trial. Um, you know, I think the other issue that you want to, uh, that people should sort of get their head around early is that there is a, a broad sort of legal principle that governments are allowed to uh, set and change policy. And uh, th there is going to be a threshold that any kind of prosecution has to clear where they are going to have to be they're going to have to be able to demonstrate that this was much more than just um, a uh, a change in policy, uh, the kind of which that a government should have a very broad uh, uh, scope to, to, to make or to change. But um, it, it is entirely possible that the RCMP could come away from this saying there is simply not enough evidence to uh, support a prosecution, or we could see it move forward. We just, we don't know yet. Um, the other investigation you mentioned uh, from the Integrity Commissioner is a different matter. Wake has no power to make a determination of criminal guilt, but he can find whether uh, there was a breach of what's called the Members Integrity Act. That's a, a provincial law that is supposed to govern the behavior of MPPs. And the Integrity Commissioner can recommend possible sanctions up to and including expelling an MPP from the legislature. However, he has no power to impose those penalties himself. He can only leave the decision to the legislature itself. Uh, but as we've already seen in this scandal, uh, the power to make findings of fact, like Wake did with a previous uh, report about then-Minister Clark, uh, and like the Auditor General uh, has uh, released uh, her report as well, uh, the, the ability to make findings of fact, to write and publish a report laying out the details of someone's conduct, these can be uh, extremely damaging to the government. So. Uh, we will see how this continues to evolve. We sure will. In the meantime, on to issue two. Ontario's post-secondary system is in the middle of arguably one of its most chaotic moments in decades. Last week, the province announced a moratorium on partnerships between public and private colleges that, in response to a new federal regulation putting a two-year cap on the number of international students allowed to study in Canada. Mark Miller is the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship of Canada. He says our system is out of control. But Ontario's post-secondary institutions are calling this a rushed, financially disastrous decision for them. So, John Michael, let's start to unpack this. 
Okay, so for a bit of context here, in 2023, there were 900,000 international students studying in Canada, and the majority of them, 51%, were in Ontario. Uh, these students come to Canadian colleges and universities looking to study and get degrees that will lead to work here or back home. Uh, post-secondary schools, both public and private, make a lot of money off of these students because international uh, tuition is not regulated tightly the way domestic tuition is in Ontario. Uh, Ontario has the highest fees in all of Canada, charging an average of $46,000 a year for an undergraduate degree for a foreign student. The greatest growth in international students has been seen in uh, career colleges, and those are part of Ontario's moratorium on public-private college partnerships. Right. Let's do some more background here. Last year, there was a story about fake admission letters being given to students from India. Most were under the impression that they had the genuine article, and then they were faced with deportation. So this cap is hoping to cut down on those types of incidents from, let's call them, bad actors in the system. If we dive a little deeper, why is this happening to these students? So... Well, uh, I think a lot of our listeners are, are going to be pretty familiar with, uh, you know, the largest universities in Ontario, your your University of Toronto, uh, your, your Queen's University. Those are not primarily uh, the institutions that are driving this boom in international students. We're seeing uh, the, the growth is happening uh, in the largest numbers at small uh, private colleges, uh, sometimes in partnership with uh, larger universities, but they are being accused of really taking advantage of international students, uh, given just how much money can be made from them. Uh, students sometimes will uh, enter into a college only to realize that it, there's not really a, a, the, the work or the path to, to easy citizenship that they were promised uh, back home. Uh, part of Ontario's moratorium is intended to bring stronger oversight uh, on these uh, private career colleges in particular. Uh, over the last decade, the number of students at these colleges increased 12-fold. Another announced change from the federal government and this uh, cap on uh, foreign students is that they will no longer be giving out uh, the work permits that were uh, accompanying uh, the uh, student visas. This uh, will do a few different things, but uh, it could plausibly give students pause about whether they want to study in Canada at all uh, if employment after their education is uh, their goal. In which case, what do we think is going to happen next? Uh, since 2023, there's been a verification process that requires universities to confirm admissions letters with Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. Now Canada is asking for an additional attestation letter from the province, but no province other than Quebec has that system in place yet. Uh, another change uh, from the feds is a cap on student visas that will uh, no longer be giving out work permits. This uh, was a part of a policy designed to make it easier for students to get Canadian work experience while they were here so that you could go, in theory, go from uh, studying in Canada to then applying for uh, a job once you had your degree and you could say that you had uh, Canadian work experience. Um, they are now uh, limiting that. Uh, this will do a number of things, but one of the things it will do is uh, make it less attractive to come to Canada uh, because it, there won't be that automatic, easy pathway into the Canadian labor market. Let's take a look at this story from another angle as well, because some believe that this cap on students might actually have some positive ramifications. For example, if there are fewer foreign students coming here, presumably there will be less of an impact uh, on the number of houses you need or accommodation that you need for these kinds of folks. Well, let's get into that. 
presumably this will reduce demand for accommodation among these foreign students. And therefore, who knows, uh, maybe ease up the housing crisis somewhat. Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility. You know, you just look around, you can see how fierce the competition for housing in uh, southern Ontario is right now. Uh, we have seen very pronounced effects every, you know, every August, September, you see huge jumps in rent in university and college towns around the province. Um, so I, I want to be careful about how we talk about this, because I don't think anybody here wants to blame these students uh, for their situation. But we just... We don't have enough houses to meet the demand that we have. Um, universities do have options for uh, housing international students uh, on their own premises, including uh, on-campus residences, but those are expensive and in short supply, though, uh, as we uh, walked into our recording studio today, uh, the federal government has announced new measures to um, improve the financing and, and, and uh, make more money available for student housing programs. Uh, students could, of course, look elsewhere. They can look to the private market for rentals, um, and they, they might might find uh, affordable housing, but uh, everything we hear is that people are having two to three people sleeping in a room, uh, landlords asking for large upfront payments because they know they can get it. Um, and uh, in some cases, of course, accommodations lacking uh, basic safety features, in some cases, not even having smoke detectors, uh, really um, nightmarish accounts of uh, what I think we, you could fairly call uh, exploitation of uh, these international students. Um, Ontario is now going to require post-secondary institutions to have a housing guarantee to ensure that uh, the students that they admit actually have uh, housing available to them. Uh, we will see if that makes a difference. Well, let's do what Woodward and Bernstein always suggested back in the day, 50 years ago, when they were covering Watergate, and that is follow the money. Okay, we're going to follow the money here. We know that if you reduce the number of foreign students coming into Ontario post-secondary institutions, that's going to mean less revenue for these post-secondary institutions because these inflated tuitions are no longer going to be paid. The Ontario colleges and universities have said they need the government to invest more money in them to help wean them off from their over-reliance on foreign-born students. So take us down that road. What are they hoping for? Uh, well, unsurprisingly, they are uh, asking for the provincial government to uh, increase the, the, the flow of money to the post-secondary sector uh, to uh, uh, boost the grants and to lift the uh, uh, tuitions they are allowed to charge. Uh, people may remember that in 2019, uh, the uh, provincial government froze uh, tuitions and, in fact, uh, uh, imposed a 10% cut on uh, domestic tuitions. Uh, the uh, post-secondary sector says th that needs needs to be undone. You need to unfreeze the tuitions, and, and in particular, you need to reverse that 10% cut. Uh, Global News has reported that the government of Ontario knew about the sector's over-reliance on international students, but uh, instead of boosting the domestic tuition, uh, they were, in fact, happy to, to accept this uh, wave of international students um, and were working on ways to uh, reduce barriers for international students and uh, retain them after graduation, which, you know, in isolation, Isolation, that's a totally sort of defensible uh, policy that just seems to have kind of run off the rails a little bit here in Ontario. In 2021 to 22, international students provided almost $3 billion in funding to schools. In 2022, publicly funded colleges were posting record surpluses due to international students, including uh, from India, coming to their schools. 
funding from international sources. It can be um, erratic or <laughs> temperamental, if you want to uh, use that uh, word. I mean, we can talk about Canada's relationship with India, Canada's relationship with China. These are countries that uh, you, you can, can never really rely on uh, the uh, constant outflow of people and money. Uh, you know, just turn your mind back to the dispute between Canada and China over uh, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei. Uh, who was detained in Canada about the uh, that was about being extradited to the US but like that was a, a, a months long affair that threw a monkey wrench into our relations with China those kinds of issues keep cropping up and uh, frankly if it wasn't going to be this uh, change in national policy that was going to cause the crisis for uh, Ontario's post-secondary sector there was always the possibility of something else coming up well, I can give you another example of that uh, closer to home here in the province of Ontario as well. Back uh, back in the day when I was chancellor at Laurentian University, uh, the deputy prime minister of Canada said some very tough things, very critical things about Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia then turned around and canceled all of the visas from their students, which they needed in order to study at uh, Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Well, the concomitant loss of income to Laurentian was so significant that it was one of the many things that contributed to that university filing for bankruptcy years later. So, yeah, this can be a very big deal, both financially, in terms of morality for the students, in so many different ways. And obviously, we'll continue to keep an eye on it and come back to it as needs be. In the meantime, on to issue three. Progressive Conservative MPP Parm Gill has resigned from his position as the Minister of Red Tape Reduction in the Ford government to run federally for Pierre Polyev's Conservative Party of Canada. Gill had represented Milton since winning the seat in 2018, but had once been an MP for Stephen Harper federally. So in some respects, everything old is new again. As we often do, let's do a deeper dive on this story because there are many subplots to it. JMM, where do you want to begin? I would like to flag some reporting done by uh, Politics Today that uh, said that the federal Conservative Party is being very selective about which Ontario MPPs uh, might want to run federally. Uh, you know, it's no secret that, you know, I think federal politics is just a, a bigger, more prominent uh, job. And if you're an ambitious politician, not terribly surprising that a provincial politician might cast their eyes towards Ottawa. But the federal party is not uh, simply throwing open the doors and saying, you know, come one, come all. Uh, they want to uh, ensure what a federal conservative source called the stench of corruption <laughs> doesn't follow any of them to the polls. This, of course, goes back to the, the Greenbelt uh, land deal that uh, continues to dog the government. Uh, few MPPs have been uh, considered, uh, let's say, good enough to run federally. They include Parmgill, clearly, uh, but also uh, it seems that uh, Transportation Minister uh, Pramit Sarkaria and Long-Term Care Minister Stan Cho also seemingly uh, uh, are, are, are getting passing marks from their federal colleagues. Uh, you know, let's uh, just pull back for a second and say that, you know, this is only the most recent uh, minister that Premier Ford has lost in uh, the last six months or so. Uh, Khalid Rashid and Steve Clark both uh, resigned uh, due to their involvement with the Greenbelt fiasco. And then uh, Monty McNaughton uh, found a job in the private sector and uh, also uh, left politics. The Progressive Conservative Party did just announce uh, late last week that they have uh, found a candidate to uh, run in uh, McNaughton's old riding. So I suspect we might see a by-election there sooner rather than later. But 
but um, you know, uh, just another another hit to the uh, provincial uh, Progressive Conservative Party. Right. Now, some people may be asking, why would the federal conservatives not want some of the higher profile or even more medium profile members uh, of the Ford government to run for them? And the answer is because despite both being under a, I guess, a broadly spoken conservative banner, uh, Doug Ford and Pierre Polyev are not allies. Ford has always prohibited his MPPs from campaigning for federal candidates in previous federal elections. And we now know what some officials in the federal party think of the provincial MPPs, that comment about the stench, the stench of corruption. That's a tough line. Now, this latest resignation sets the stage for a by-election for the riding of Milton. Milton is not far from Mississauga, so some people have been wondering about whether the new liberal leader, Bonnie Crombie, might contest the by-election there. I am hearing that there is, of course, a vigorous debate in the leader's office about that, and that the answer more than likely at the end of the day will be no. Even though the Tories only won it by four points back in 2022, Crombie probably will not, almost certainly will not vie for that seat. Why do you think, JMM? Well, there's a few things. Uh, Milton is, I guess, relatively close in the sense that it's like broadly the Western GTA, but it's not a slam dunk that Crombie would uh, win if she ran there. Milton is not uh, Mississauga. It's not even Peel region. Uh, even if she did win, then she's got the problem of, well, that's her job now, and she'd be expected to show up in uh, the House uh, and and there are arguments that she doesn't actually want or need to be there. Uh, you, you know, we've heard this a few times since she won, that uh, it frankly is more productive for her to be traveling the province, getting her name out there, getting her face out there, uh, you know, finding more candidates, raising more money. There's there's a lot more to running a political party uh, than uh, showing up at the legislature, as important as you and I both uh, believe the legislature to be. Now, one of the things that you always hear whenever somebody leaves early, you often hear the suggestion made by the opposition that, what's the expression? The rats are starting to leave the sinking ship. Uh, in this case, what do you think about those allegations? I mean, you know, it's it's always a possibility or it's got that patina of, of uh, plausibility. Uh, but, you know, let's um, assess it critically. Uh, you know, Gill does have that federal history. Um, he doesn't exactly have the most senior job in cabinet. The minister for uh, red tape reduction is not one of the power ministries, you would say. Um, so, you know, he could be angling for a, a higher profile job uh, if uh, Pierre Poilievre does indeed become the next prime minister. Uh, but I think it's also fair to say that some of his colleagues are probably not thrilled with him right now. Uh, we've said this before on the podcast. Politics is a team sport. And uh, you even saw this when uh, Steve Clark left, that there were uh, certainly reports that people were uh, quite uh, upset with the manner of, of his departure. They felt that it was um, leaving the premier to hold the bag, if I, I could put it that way. Um, and so even just the appearance that uh, Gill is... Um, getting out while the getting's good is uh, potentially damaging to uh, his colleagues who are sticking around and still have a government to run uh, at least until uh, the next election in 2026. Yeah, let me raise another angle on this story as well. And this one actually follows up on a question we got from a listener a few weeks ago. We were asked, you may remember, whether party nominations are genuine exercises in democracy or is basically the fix in. And my answer at the time was, well, it's both. Uh, sometimes there are genuine open contests for the right to represent a political party in a particular riding, 
And, uh, you know, a number of candidates step forward and they try to sign up members and then they try to win a convention. Well, this was not one of those incidents, <laughs> obviously. Uh, the federal conservative party wanted Parm Gill as its candidate. Parm Gill wanted to be the candidate. Once they knew that that matchmaking was going to be successful, the party announced that he would run for the nomination, and they then announced that they would change the party rules, which require 14 days notice if any others want to run for the nomination before they close the door on nominations. They changed the rule, and then they said, nominations are closed right now. Now, is any of that democratic? Um, not particularly, since conservative <laughs> voters in Milton are certainly being deprived of a choice of candidates in their nominating uh, convention. But this is a great example of how, if parties want to change the rules to suit their leaders' interests, they can certainly do so. It's called putting your thumb on a scale for a candidate. And there's frankly not a darn thing anyone can do about it. We have seen in the past some uh, jilted candidates. They try uh, suing in court for uh, depriving them of their right to run in a, in a fair and open competition. In general, the courts have sided with parties in the past saying that they are essentially private clubs and they can do what they want. Uh, very, very rarely you get a case where uh, a party has acted uh, so egregiously that they've actually violated their own internal bylaws. Um, but even there, yeah, courts have generally given uh, parties very uh, wide leeway to do what they want. So if there were others uh, who were looking to uh, run for the conservative nomination in Milton, very sorry, but you are uh, very likely out of luck. And now, on to your column, my column. Time now for our regular feature, Your Column, My Column, in which JMM and I reminisce about columns that we wrote for our website, tvo.org, over the past week. JMM, let me tee you up and have you start by telling us what you've got up your sleeve. Uh, I wrote about an interesting report by the C.D. Howe Institute, which uh, looked at whether there will actually be enough uh, electric vehicles made or able to be imported in Canada uh, by 2035 to uh, meet the target the, the national government has set of basically being 100% uh, electric uh, by that year. Uh, this report uh, found that uh, you know, th there will not be uh, sufficient production of electric vehicles to, to meet that target. Um, now, the report itself is certainly open to criticism. What was fun about this story was that um, for relatively technical, uh, one might even say, kind of dry uh, material for, you know, matters of auto regulation. Uh, some some people gave me some spicy quotes for that one, Steve. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I would encourage our readers to go read it because uh, it's it's rare for the, the world of white papers and policy wonks to um, uh, be, uh, it was, it was, it was not quite pistols at dawn, uh, but uh, the, the two people I spoke with kind of got into it a little bit. They mixed it up and, and that was fun. <laughs> What about you, Steve? Well, I did a piece for the website last week on a real larger-than-life character by the name of Rocco Rossi. And that name may ring some bells with some of our listeners because he did run in the provincial election, I guess, a few elections ago. And he also ran for mayor of Toronto once upon a time as well. Uh, that was the year that Rob Ford won, so back in 2010. Uh, Mr. Rossi has just come to the end of his six-year tenure as the head of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, one of obviously the most important special interest groups in the province of Ontario. 
And given that he's about to turn 62 this week, I guess a lot of people have been asking him, Rocco, are you retiring? And he assures everybody he is not retiring. He is rewiring, which is a new expression I suspect we're going to hear more of in the years ahead. Um, Rocco Rossi had a huge role to play when COVID first hit to make sure that businesses in particular were protected uh, from the ravages of COVID-19. So he certainly had numerous meetings with government about how the province could help backstop temporarily uh, businesses in the province so that they didn't go under during the worst of COVID. Uh, now that he has left his time at the Chamber of Commerce, he's actually, as we speak, over in Spain, where he is walking the 1,000-kilometer-long Camino de Santiago, which is this, of course, internationally recognized amazing biosphere that a lot of people uh, walk uh, from time to time. This is the 18th time that he will be walking this thing. So uh, he has uh, frequently gone back to Spain in order to clear his head and sort of figure out what his next mission in life will be. Uh, as we suggested, Rocco's larger than life. He's six foot three inches tall. He's a big presence. He's got a big smile. He's got a big booming voice. So I don't know what his next mission is going to be when he returns, but I can predict it's going to be big. <laughs> you know, I uh, first met Rocco covering that 2010 election, and uh, he he was on the ballot in the end. Uh, he dropped out of the race uh, right before uh, voting day, but uh, his name was was still on the ballot. So uh, there there were a handful of votes for him. Uh, that was that. I mean, that was such a wild race to cover, and uh, for you know everybody gets into a race thinking, obviously, that they've got a shot. And in the end, uh, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, uh, people like uh, the late Mayor Rob Ford and uh, George Smitherman, they ended up sort of sucking up a lot of the oxygen. And, and Rocco uh, really just did not, um, you know, he, he tried to make some big announcements, tried to put some big ideas in, into the race you know, ended up not making it, but I, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously stayed in public life. I, I kind of suspect, as you say, uh, we have not heard the last of Rocco Rossi. <laughs> yeah, in fact, he and I had a very candid conversation about many of the very serious politically strategic mistakes he made in that mayoral campaign, along with a very tough provincial campaign where he switched parties and ran. He was a liberal his whole life, and then he ran for the conservatives for Tim Hudak, uh, in one of the prior elections. And, um, you know, he's very candid at this stage of his life about mistakes he made and and why he didn't win. So anyway, go to our website, tvo.org, and have a look at both of those columns, if you would, because it'll make JMM and I feel better, if nothing else. <laughs> that is the On Poly podcast for this January 30th, 2024. Remember to listen to the very end of our podcast to find out what embarrassing comments JMM or I made before we actually started recording this thing. You can follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow it too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Christine Gardner and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. I actually biked to 2180 today. Oh, good for you. Yeah. And do you have a police escort, of course, when you drive to work? Uh, right up until the moment I, I pull into the parking garage and then they peel off to go to...
take care of more important matters. <laughs> what could be more important than getting you to the studio for this podcast? That's what I say. <laughs>